Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morphin. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. We dive into a variety of cases in both the U.S. and abroad. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of, like the Pocatello babysitter murders or the canal murders. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime, like the Tylenol murders and the Lindbergh kidnapping. We also dive into cases that are currently breaking thanks to DNA and forensic genealogy. Sometimes you'll hear from people connected to the cases, like the interview we did with the brother-in-law of the Golden State Killer, Joseph D'Angelo. There are close to 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now, including full seasons covering the Zodiac Killer, the Golden State Killer, and Ted Bundy, and new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. You're listening to Missing Persons, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, DNA ID, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, and Three Men and a Mystery. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its creators, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss a missing persons case on this podcast, please be sure to visit missingpersonspodcast.net. This episode may contain unsettling or disturbing subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Missing Persons, a podcast dedicated to spreading the word about people who have vanished under mysterious or unexplained circumstances, and the family members who are looking for answers. I'm Jess Betancourt. And I'm Mike Morford. Together, we created this podcast to help give a voice to people who continue to search for their missing loved ones, in some cases even after decades have gone by. In each episode, you'll hear from Jess giving listeners the backstory and the basic facts of the disappearance. Then Mike will speak with someone who's intimately connected to the missing person, and his guest will share their story with us. Please stay tuned at the conclusion of this episode to hear about our Patreon program and our commitment to help find people who have gone missing. We'll also share with you where you can find more information and how you can join our team and help our efforts. You'll get recommendations for other podcasts we think you'll enjoy, and more. So sit back and enjoy this episode, and who knows, maybe you can help us find someone who's missing. Episode 47, Robert Deshaun Childers. Robert Deshaun Childers, who went by Sean, was born on September 11, 1965. In 2016, he was divorced, 51 years old, and living in the Cloverdale area of Florence, Alabama, with a man named David Nix. Sean had inherited a house from his father, but it had been sold in a tax sale, and Sean was forced to move out. This was a few months before he vanished. The ownership of the home was the subject of an ongoing legal dispute, and a hearing was scheduled to address the property rights when Sean disappeared. 
Sean had moved in with his sister Brenda and her boyfriend, Nix, but his sister was sent to prison, and Sean and David Nix ended up living in the house together. Sean was reported missing on Monday, September 19, 2016, by his roommate, David Nix. Nix told the following story. On September 17th, a Saturday, the two men were on the porch of the house they shared, listening to nighttime college football games on the radio. This was sometime between 9 and 12 p.m. At halftime during one of the games, Sean went inside and took a shower. He dressed in his nicest clothes. Here is a quote from Nix. And he was dressed up, you know, in his dress clothes, had tears just rolling down his face, and he just grabbed me right there and hugged me, said, I love you, said, I don't know when I'll see you again, and stepped down right off the steps right here and started walking north right here into the dark. According to Nix's missing persons report, Sean locked his truck before he left and handed Nix the keys. Nix reported that Sean was carrying his medications in a bag when he left. He walked away from the house, located at 1237 Highway 141, north of Cloverdale and east of Alabama 157. Nix watched him walk north on County Road 141 and disappear from view. According to the Doe Network, Sean had little or no money with him when he was last seen. He didn't take his phone with him or any of the personal items that his family maintains he would never leave without. They were all found in the house. Investigators say no one has used Sean's social security number and no withdrawals have been made from his bank account. Sean is classified as disabled, suffering from physical infirmities resulting from a devastating car accident he was in years earlier. He was unable to work. Sean is also known to have substance abuse and mental health issues for which he takes medication. And according to the Charlie Project, some of Sean's medication was found the year after he vanished south of his residence. A neighbor who lived next door to Sean and David Nix observed Sean acting erratically and manically on the day before he disappeared. He was acting paranoid and scared and even tried to get into the neighbor's window. On the night when Sean was last seen, the neighbor saw Sean running around in the dark with no shirt on, using a flashlight to look for DEA agents. He was sweating and extremely agitated and said repeatedly, they are after me, they are after me. It has also been reported that Nix and Sean did not get along and had physical altercations in the past. The family has learned that Nix was violent and abusive toward Sean and had severely injured him in the recent past. The neighbor witnessed this on one occasion. Sean was passive and unable to fight back. On the night when Sean was acting strange, the neighbor said that Nix was visibly irritated by Sean's behavior. David Nix is now deceased. He always denied that he harmed Sean, saying, quote, No, no, I sure didn't, sure didn't. Sometimes he was hard to get along with, but I didn't do nothing like that. But Sean's family is skeptical of Nix's story that Sean walked away down the road. Sean was unable to walk much of anywhere because of his disabilities. When he did walk, it was with a severe limp and he was in pain. Why would he have walked away, the family questions, when his truck was parked right there? Furthermore, the family maintains that the clothing Nix described Sean wearing when he allegedly left the house was later found in the house. His pain medication was also found in the house after he vanished. And the house had recently been scoured clean with bleach when the police searched it. Although the family is highly suspicious of David Nix, they are also concerned about Sean's mental health. He was very depressed and was known to have substance addiction problems. But nothing adds up to him leaving and taking his own life, and the inconsistencies in David Nix's stories are too significant to ignore. 
The Lauderdale County Sheriff's Office has conducted searches for Sean. This from News 19. We have used cadaver dogs around his home. They did not alert on anything around his home. We've tried tracking dogs. We've had our mounted posse out. As of yet, there's no trace of Mr. Childers, and we have, to be honest with you, we have no idea where he may have walked off to. This from Brad Potts, Lauderdale County Sheriff's Investigator. Civilian volunteer searches have been conducted as well, to no avail. Sean Childers has brown hair and blue eyes. He is six foot two and weighs around 240 pounds, although the family believes he has lost a lot of weight recently. He has a fused neck cervical vertebrae, a scar that runs down the back of his neck, scars from surgery and ostomy, and walks with a limp. If you have seen Sean or know where he is, please call the Lauderdale County Sheriff's Office at 256-760-5757. Mike Morford sat down with Sean's family, his brother David, sister-in-law Carol, and ex-wife Lisa to talk about Sean's case. That conversation is coming up after a word from our sponsors. With me today are the family of Sean Childers. Thank you all for being here. And if if you would, would you like to introduce yourselves? Sure. I'm Carol Childers. Uh, Sean was my bro- is my brother in law. We are the same age, um, 1965, and um, I have, I guess, really championed the case because I sit in front of a computer all day and have nothing else to do. And I'm married to his one and only brother, David Wayne. Uh, go ahead. Ladies first, Lisa. Go ahead. Okay. My name is Lisa Eaton, and I was married to Sean Childers at one time. Uh, I'm his brother, David Wayne Childers. I'm a little shell Chippewa Indian, and I, I want to find my brother. Well, thank you all for being here. Obviously, this is a, a family effort here, um, and, and we were talking a little bit about the case before we started recording that you sort of when someone goes missing, there's no playbook, there's no manual on what to do, uh, but it sounds like you're all sort of acting together in some kind of organized manner, which is good because, you know, uh, unfortunately, I talk about a lot of cases with people where the family is at odds with each other, they're finger pointing, uh, things like that, versus sticking together and trying to find answers. So I, I think at, at the very least, you guys have that going for you. And there are others, uh, David and Sean had, um, they have four sisters and they live, um, over in Alabama. Three of them do. And one lives here. And, uh, David and I have just, I think ended up being the, the focal point. Um, just the, I don't know how that happens. It just usually happens that way. But, um, for the most part, yeah, everybody has, uh, has really had something to bring to the table. And uh, it's just been uh, something you only read on or listen to on CSI on the movies, what we've been through. Just don't believe, believe this ha- will happen to you because, and, and here, we, here we say again, you know, my brother wasn't a saint, but he don't deserve this. And uh, I, I'll, do, I'll do anything. I guess you call it closure. And, you know, he is my brother. Yeah. And, and just a, a little bit of background information. Uh, tell us a little bit about Sean and his full name. Just correct me if I'm wrong is Robert Deshaun Childers. He went by Sean. Right. Um, right. 
Tell us a little bit about his life, what was going on in his life at the time. I know you mentioned he wasn't a saint, uh, but he didn't deserve, you know, to go missing without any clues. But can you sort of walk us through that time right before he went missing where things were in his life? Sure. Um, Sean, Sean was a gentle giant, big guy, and um, he, you know, he, he loved life. He just didn't cope real well, and, and that... 2015 um, was sort of a pivotal point in all of our lives. Um, David and Sean's dad, my father-in-law, he passed away in March um, of 22nd. And Sean lived in his house out in Cloverdale. And Dave had moved into town, into Florence. And um, Sean just was, they were in a battle, uh, Dave and Sean, to keep the little home that they've had, it had been sold in a tax sale. So Sean was struggling. He had some health issues. Um, he was disabled, um, but he was just struggling to, to get through that court thing. Uh, Mr. Dave wasn't in the best of health. And so I think he kind of felt like it, it lied in his lap to make this work. And um, he had his sister, Brenda, and Brenda's boyfriend, David Nix, had moved in with Sean, and the three of them were living in Dave's house at the time Dave died. And so we went into 2015 through, and it was a rocky year. And then 2016, uh, the gentleman who bought the house in the tax sale evicted them. And it was a, it was kind of a, there was a, a, a junction put against him, but it was only after he had his, crew totally ransacked the house and yeah. emptied it of all its contents to evict them. The power had been turned off and the three of them had been living there in that house uh, with no power, no water uh, for a week or more. And um, it was hot and it was really David and David was calling Sean trying to, you know, preparing for court because they were going to go back to court trying to see if I could work something out. And it was really getting the best of him. He would just, Brenda, his sister, would call. And there was fights and disagreements between the group. And there just a lot of stuff, chaos. And he just wasn't coping real well with it. And so we went into, I guess, the April and May of 2016. And um, it seemed like the... There were more fights between the three of them and one of the other sisters. Um, and David would tell Sean, you just call 911 and tell them to come out and, and put an end to this. You know, they've got to go. That's your house. And Sean, he finally just said, David, take the house. I don't want it. So we went into July and he had gone to court and it, it was just... It was hard, and we couldn't go over there and get him, and he was really having to stand up. He had been in the news uh, where the house was in this um, court issue, whatever, with Mr. Darby. And um, we ended up at August 21st, I think, was the last conversation I had had with Sean. And the marshals had come to arrest him because he had a bench warrant. And um, I called David called me. He said, call Sean. Something's happened. And I called him and he said, I don't know, Carol. I don't know what this is. I think I've got a warrant. I didn't know this. 
And I say all that to give this detail, Brad Bolton, it was the sergeant who was out to pick Sean up. He was there and he told Sean, he said, go on and talk to your sister and, um, and we'll go when you're ready. And Sean was so weak at that point that Brad had to help yep, him down the steps and into the car, like literally, you know, pick him up. And um, so they went and he, he was, he had bench warrants and he made him come get him, but that was just him. That afternoon he called me and said, well, I'm out, I'm back. And he was sober. We had the greatest conversation and he just said, you know, I've got to get my life together. And I just can't stand this fighting out here. He said, every time I turn around, there's fighting and fighting. And if, if I could, it just uh, because you mentioned it, uh, and I was curious because it was uh, some of what was reported, you mentioned that your, your brother was an alcoholic, that he was also disabled. Can you elaborate what? on that? Did he have an illness or was he injured uh, through work or, or what? He had, he had that, I can't remember what year it was because I'm not good with keeping up. I have a problem with time. But anyhow, I think it was 94, he had a wreck and broke his neck uh, like Christopher Reeves. But Sean went to uh, Sims Murphy here in Memphis, and they patched him back together. And uh, that when I went and got Sean out of the uh, hospital, the doctors told me, uh, He's going to have to be careful for the rest of his life because the right lick to his head will kill him. Sean, I, Sean had two three-inch screws in his neck. And, and, and a bunch of wire where they wired them vertebrae back together. Now, Sean got, got around good, but uh, it got to the point where he couldn't, you know, he couldn't hold a job. Anyhow, he was disabled. And a lot, and, a uh, lot of pain medicine. He yeah. went through pain management. And... So that left him, he had liver issues, and he also had a bad knee. Yes. And Sean never walked, went anywhere without this knee brace that he, or he had lost, gosh, Lisa, you remember he had lost weight, just, just he was skin and bones. Yeah. Um, by it was very, his health had, had declined a lot. Yeah, a lot. Physical toll, uh, it seems like it wore on him, and then you have... Uh, the fact that he's, you know, disabled, he's, uh, has the alcoholism and then he's got this, uh, you know, the fighting about the property and it seems like he was get discouraged. W would you say that he was in depressed or, or anything like that at the time he went missing? Very. Very. Uh, I'd say so. Uh, uh, yes, I'd say possibly because it was. You know, and something I didn't know, and I guess this is my stupidity, I didn't know. He was disabled, and I had no clue that you could take somebody's house when they were disabled. But I, you know, different, you know, different places, and, and I'm learning a lot now. Excuse um, me, go ahead. And something that happens, uh, Sean wasn't aware that his dad's taxes had not been paid. And so he lost the house for $600. This elderly gentleman who buys up property over there bought it for $600 and was going to evict him. He did. And he did. Oh, wow. And so that, you know, that had to be very tough. Uh, you know, you mentioned the three of them are living together, and that's just adding to the, 
the problems that they were going through. Um, let's, let's go back if we can to the, the day when it seems he disappeared, September 17th, uh, 2016. How did things unfold that day? And, and how did you all discover that he was missing? Um, that's a good question because, um, we were not contacted by anybody until, uh, we received a call from David Nix on the 20th, which would have been that Tuesday, wasn't it, Lisa? The, the Tuesday and that, yeah, Monday was when he filed the report. He drove into Florence and wrote a report out to Sergeant Bolton. So that Tuesday, um, Cynthia, your older sister. My oldest sister, yeah. Nick, David Nix had called the oldest sister, and the oldest sister called David, and she said, David Wayne, some, this, he's done something to show him. I, I know it. David had gone into, um, the story was that he went, uh, they were watching football games, Alabama and Auburn versus Texas A&M and Ole Miss that Saturday, the 17th. So Nix said they were eating and drinking beer and listening to the radio. And that at the, help me, Lisa, the halftime of the second game, right? The Ole Miss game. The Ole Miss. Sean showered and put on his starched Wrangler blue jeans, his green Wrangler shirt, his boots, and put his medicine, he had pain medicine, blood pressure medicine, but he put all that medicine in a Walmart sack. He gave his keys to David Nix and was crying, saying, I'm probably never going to see you again. So and he, he did have a pickup that he could have driven away instead of right. just walking away. Right. And Nick said he walked away, and it was like around dusk, uh, north on County Road 141. And the question was asked to Nick's, well, why didn't you go after him? And Nick said, well, I thought he had a date. So, so he, he was acting a little bit strange, but Nick's claim that he thought he had a date sort of seemed to not add up to each other. Yeah. The strange part was the night before it was evident from what the neighbors say that he had been either doing a lot of drugs. He was seeing people hallucinating, running around. And then that day he was sweaty and and just having some real mental problems. And then for him to sober up to the point that he would shower, put on his Ariat boots, his Wrangler blue jeans, his green shirt, but he didn't, as Sean would do, and anybody who knew him, Sean didn't put his belt on and his trophy belt buckle. He didn't take his Listerine or his brush with him. He left his phone and just walked away. And we knew that that just wasn't true. I mean, it does. Sean couldn't, he couldn't walk very far because the, uh, the, uh, uh, he had had his knee operated on. And anyhow, it, it, it helped, but he was, he was extremely crippled. And when somebody told me that he walked away, I said, there's no way he can walk away. He can't, you know, he, he, he almost in a wheelchair because of, you know, his health. But anyhow, 
that was the story that, that was reported the story. to Lauderdale yeah. County Sheriff's Department. And, and and just to back up for one second, just so, to clarify something, you had mentioned that the, the power had been cut off, but now they were watching a football game. Just out of curiosity, was it turned back on that uh, enabled no, to watch the game? The, the, the neighbors, neighbors ran an extension cord for them. Gotcha. And they were able to have a crock pot, a fan, and a radio. Okay. Okay. And and this area for for listeners, if you can explain, is this like a rural area? Is this someplace where there's a lot of stores and a lot of people no, that would have seen uh, him? No, it, uh, it's kind of a I guess you could, uh, kind of a community, but it's uh, about twenty miles north of Florence, Alabama. It's it's called Cloverdale. On the and, Tennessee line, yeah, right up, about five miles from the Tennessee line, south of the Tennessee line. And, uh, it is a it is a rural area. Yes, where not a lot of it's, stores. There's thing one like. one dollar general. There's one dollar. That's right, one dollar general. And uh, that's basically other than a few people. That's all. Yes. Okay, so it's not like a a place where every you know so often there's a a different business or a different place uh, where where he could have been seen moving around. Yeah. No. Uh, well, and and you mentioned that there were some reports that Sean was yelling or maybe uh, acting a little bit. We were maybe talking to people um, that weren't there. Was he ever? Had he ever had any kind of delusions or paranoia or anything like that in his past? Not, not when he was not under the influence of something chemically. You know, and this all this surprised me because I never knew this. Yeah, I knew drink, and uh, uh, but far as delusional or anything that, but I, you know, I don't know everything. From Nixon's explanation to us, he the Friday night before he had tried to climb through the window of the people who live next door that he was seeing. He he was scared. He was seeing people under a bird feeder, and, and they were really having to kind of rein him in. And then Saturday, I guess it all took place again, but then all of a sudden he decided he was going to leave. I'm just curious, and, was there a reason that they didn't call, like reach out to family and say, hey, he's he's having some kind of breakdown or he's seeing things or anything? Or, I'm glad you asked. Yeah. I'm glad you asked. David Nix, um, he was a type of person. He likes to be the go-to guy. And David's sister, Brenda, was in jail during this time. So it's just Sean and Nix living there together. And um, somehow the sheriff's department was made, given the idea that Sean had no family. Nix told them and other people that he was being paid to live with Sean to make sure that he took his medicine and went to the doctor's office and ate and, and those type things. And that really nobody cared about him. His family didn't. That he was all, Nix was all Sean had, which that was not true because at least a year before that, um, before David's, their dad died, he explicitly told the, the three kids that were lived there at one time or another, that Nix had to go, that he was violent, that he had to go. 
But when you're in a situation and you have three, uh, let's just say, addicts, and money takes place, and you know they weren't, it would be easier to make him let him stay than to make him go. What? Excuse me. What I had a hard time with after I found this out was law enforcement listening to a person uh, tell them that Sean had no family. And then after we contacted them, they still would not acknowledge that we were his family. And I don't want to bash law enforcement because we need them. We got to have them. And uh, that's just something I still to this day haven't understood. That was probably the most bewildering thing, uh, Mike, that, you know, we were getting information. David Nix was calling us to tell us about the searches and and when when things were going to happen and that the sheriff had stopped by. And so we contacted the lieutenant who who was the lead on the case. And it was strange because he was sort of like, well, who are you? You know, and we said, some, you know, Sean wasn't able to walk off. Well, how do you know? And at one time, it hit the media that this indigent guy uh, was, a picture was captured on a deer cam. And so the investigator called David and said, um, I'm going to send you a picture. Is this your brother? So David looked at the picture. and We're four hours away from Florence. And David looked at the picture and he told uh, Lieutenant Potts, he said, no, no, that's not my brother. And Potts said, well, when's the last time you saw him? I told him. <laughs> I was there the day he, uh, they brought him home from the hospital. I know exactly what he looks like. That is not him. Well, you haven't seen him in 10 years. I said, yes, I have. I said, I know what he looks like. That's not him. And be dad gone. They put it on uh, the, news. the news that they had found my brother with in that same picture that I said wasn't my brother. But like I said, I'm not. I'm not I don't want to talk bad about anybody. Yeah. They quickly retracted the the um the yes. the media alert that he was not found. Oh. I think I think that stemmed from David Nix making everyone in that community and law enforcement officers believe that he was all that Sean had and that he was Sean's caretaker and that none of us really existed except for his sister Brenda that, that David yeah. Nick yeah. lived with at one time. But I, I think that they didn't believe us. They didn't believe David Wayne and they didn't want to cooperate with us. And I'm like, David Wayne, I'm not bashing the law enforcement, but they did not want to cooperate with us at first because David Nick said he walked away. David Nick said, oh, he does this on occasion. He'll be back. And they didn't believe anything that we said about, no, we know he would not walk away. We know his mannerisms, even though we hadn't seen him in six months or a year. We still knew how he acted in everyday life. And we knew not normal for him to do the things they were saying. Sure. And, and and you mentioned David Nix. A lot of this hinges upon what he told police. Uh, I, I want to just clarify to a little bit about the timing because I've seen different times uh, mentioned. I, I know in one statement Nix said that Sean left around seven thirty, 
but the Doe Network and a few other sites mention as him leaving between 9 and midnight. And also uh, uh, the neighbor mentioned that Sean left at around 11.30. So do we have a, a real timing uh, that night, a real uh, something that's reliable? Well, that that's what's, that's what's bewildering. Again, um, the neighbor, we David and I traveled over there the week after the report was filed. And we just went to, we, David knew the neighbors and we sat on the porch and I asked the the lady, I said, you know, I know that you guys have just had to deal with a lot here, um, just from what we've heard on the phone and I appreciate anything that you've done. And, and I said, um, what happened? And she immediately said, I don't think he's telling the truth. David Nix is not telling the truth. And I said, well, all we want you to do is, just tell the truth. And she said, well, he says he walked away, but I came out at about 930 to let my dog out. I didn't turn the light on because I didn't want, I was between 730 and 930. I didn't want them to come down here. David was fussing at Sean. Sean was seeing the DEA people in the, in the attic and he was running around with uh, shorts, no shirt with a flashlight and Nix and as she said, I think Nix was very, very irritated with him. And I asked her, I said, well, what kind of relationship did they have? And she said, well, it's, um, according to who you ask, Nix will tell you that they're the best of friends and Sean, well, he probably won't say anything, but she said about 1130, she was back out on the porch and Sean jumped up and scared her. He was, uh, sweaty and his eyes were dilated and he said they're after me they're after me so she said after that um that Nix was in the she gave lisa one story mine's a little different she said that they moved out into the shadows and were sitting down in some chairs and she went back inside and that's the last time she saw sean and then she didn't see Nix the next day that would have put the time on about midnight she said Okay, so we we know that as of the last time she saw him, it was eleven thirty p.m. So sometime right. after that is yeah. is when he went missing. Uh, so mm-hmm. it it sounds like everything you've said so far, you early on had some suspicions that something didn't add up. But I also know that you've mentioned that a couple weeks after he went missing, the clothes that he was reported to have been wearing when he left were found. Uh, yes. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and that incident? Yeah, go ahead. Um, had they had the uh, search and rescue dogs from Huntsville come, and they did several searches in the first week, and a big, a massive community search was planned for the sec- first weekend in October, uh, and they were inviting horses, boilers, and it actually organized the plot the. Uh, land off to do an organized search. So um, <clears throat> David and I were not able to go. Lisa wasn't there, but um, my two sister-in-laws were there and our nieces. And Lieutenant Potts was there. So they were going to arrange to have these, um, I-, I thought, cadaver dogs go through the house. And so after the dogs went through the house, um, my sister-in-law, Angie, Robin, the nieces, they went up to the house and wanted to get in. 
So Nick had to unlock the door. And he he exclaimed, look, I've cleaned up for you. And Angie was so upset because she said he bleached the floor. There was a big white bleach spot in the middle of the living room floor. You could smell bleach. Yeah, and you could smell, smell bleach. Well, Sean's room was locked. He always kept a lock and a hasp on it. So they had to go in and, I guess, figure out how to get the door open. But my sister and niece uh, started packing up his blue jeans. And my niece, Hallie, our niece, Hallie, said, well, here's his boots. Yes. The Ariat boots that he was reported to have walked away in. Here's his boots. And, and other clothes that he was supposed to have worn. The green shirt. Where they, they, they found them. But not his wallet. Not his, um, well, I was... Now, I was surprised. I asked, well, where are his dirty clothes? Because Sean lived with us at one time, and he's very meticulous. He kept his dirty clothes in a little corner. I said, where are his dirty clothes? Because the neighbor had said he had shorts and the no shirt on. And then David Nixon said he had on sweats and a T-shirt. So the stories are conflicting on that. But then, like Carol said, nobody ever found the clothes that he went in and took a shower and put on these dress clothes to what Hallie or, or the other sister never saw those dirty clothes. I, I, I think there's even a re when he made the report, uh, yeah. he, he told everything that Sean had on and then they found them there at the house. Plus, you know, uh, Lieutenant Potts, uh, anyhow, he was there and, uh, when they had the, the search and it just totally surprised me when David Nick said, I knew y'all were coming. So I cleaned up. Wow. That gum with a big bleach spot in the floor. Yeah. That's, my sister took the that's very, uh, strange. It's, uh, troubling, it troubling when you see something like that. Um, so, uh, it seems like a lot of this all hinges on what Nick's had to say, um, he's yes. the one that described what your brother was uh, supposedly wearing when he left, but yet the clothes were found later on. Um, so some of the stuff doesn't make sense. Um, he says that Sean left on foot, but if he, you know that he couldn't walk that far and his truck was there, he could have taken that if he was going to go someplace yeah. far. So that doesn't add up. What was Nick's response? Was he cooperative with the police? Did he answer their questions and what was the did the police believe him did they think he was being truthful we're not sure yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know how to answer that he would call he would always call and um, I honestly think he, he wanted to be part of the family I really do he was always the one that was saying I'm going to get this and I'm going to do this and the sheriff is here and look he didn't commit suicide. The sheriff came and said if he was going to commit suicide, he would have taken his pain pills, and he left his pain pills. And Nick said he, there was three of them. And um, he took his blood pressure medicine and his fiber. So he didn't go commit suicide, and we would just listen. Uh, one thing that was really funny, and I've learned a lot about uh, the things people do, you know, you do things. Everybody has their little things that they do. Routine. routine. 
who you learn a lot when you listen and, and look at people. Uh, Sean was a, he was a meticulous little person, and I guess. He had, if he went anywhere, he was going to have his brush, his toothbrush, and his bottle of Listerine. That was him. He had a little black bag, a little trucker bag that he, he carried his toiletries and stuff in. He was a nut about his teeth. He would not go anywhere overnight without his toothbrush. And he was impeccably clean. I mean, worse than any girl. And Nix, he he couldn't. <laughs> we asked, well, where's his belt? So Sean's not going to go off without his belt and that buckle. And he left his hat. Sean's cowboy. David's a cowboy. He left his hat. That was not Sean. And he needed that belt because he had lost so much weight that his clothes were just hanging. And Nick just would fly by it. He would just like, oh, well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, especially you mentioned him losing weight and his pants falling down. If he's especially if he's walking, not driving someplace, he's going to need his pants to stay up. So the belt seems <laughs> like, yeah. And and those are the things that if something happened to him in the story that Nix is telling isn't true, uh, those are the little things maybe he didn't think about. Uh, um, again, there's been no charges against him, so you know we're not openly saying yeah. that he's responsible, yeah. but. Yeah. Um, so it, the case now, it, it's been all these years, it's been o- over five years now. Um, what's the latest? Is there anything new? Are the police doing anything different? Are they, uh, trying to do anything, uh, sort of maybe out of the ordinary or new in order to solve the mystery of what happened to your brother? In my job, I do a lot of reading and I do a lot of my degrees in chemistry and forensic work. So I had time to research a lot of things. And through the years, I was able to make contact with a a special agent from Quantico, uh, Mike Yoder, who did profiling. And he wrote an article called uh, uh, Practical Investigation Techniques for a Nobody Homicide. And I reached out to him and I said, "Your, your, your article is our life. This is what we're living. And he emailed me back and said, I would be more than happy to help you. I've contacted the field office in Birmingham, and we're going to profile your brother. And so they sent profiles, and we did the profiling. And we weren't really ever sure if they were sent back, but I think something happened because he's on the BICAP uh, database with the FBI. Um, So in that push and reading Mike Yoder's stuff on why people do what they do, there is a guy who wrote a book um, called The uh, Practical Investigation of a Nobody Homicide. And his name's Tad DeBazi. He is a ex-federal prosecutor. And Tad has won these nobody homicide cases. And his thing is, you know, you don't have to have a body to, win a, to, to prove somebody's been murdered. And that's the best evidence, but it's not the only evidence. He will consult for free and, and he will help the law enforcement and the prosecution and not he can't talk to the family after that he asked for the case file two years ago two years ago we approached we approached lauderdale county and that, at that time matt horton had taken the case and that's a good guy smart but there's a little ego there when you say hey we've been talking to this dude in washington and and he wants to help all tad asked for is the case file he said i have to have the complete tape case file not part of it not half of it all of it. If they won't give me that, I, I don't get involved. 
finally, after almost two years, uh, they decided to give Tad the case file. He has it at this point. I think what he does is look through and make recommendations as to what he thinks after the cases that he has, you know, tried and, and won and make recommendations to the prosecution as to what's going on. The big kick in our lives was the fact that David Nix was found dead May 10th of uh, last year. And um, he, they said it was either a heart attack, aneurysm, or something. He was found five days after he died. Wow. So, so if, if he had any involvement or knew anything, he took those secrets to the grave with him. Exactly. Wow. And uh, so, and, and that brings me to a, another thing that I was actually going to ask, but this, this leads me right into it. Um, so he's, was dating your sister uh, at the time. Had they, right. did they break up or was she dating him until he died? Uh, that's a good question. I don't, I think they had went their separate ways and, uh, and, I don't really know, but I don't think she had any dealings with him. Uh, after, after yeah, she after, got out of jail and, yeah. and went through probation. Um, we found out, and this is one we did convince Brenda to, to sever ties with him. As David and I sat on the porch that afternoon so in September with the neighbors, and we asked about their relationship, and um, they said, you know, the only thing, Sean would never fight back. He, he would, Nix would just beat him and he would never fight back. And um, we had no idea. And it was so sad because they said, You don't know what happened to your brother. And no, uh, David Nix stomped his head in and crushed his eye socket. Wow. And no one ever told, we never knew. We never knew this. That was six months before he went missing. After that, we found out that he had really, really abused Brenda. And that's, that's makes you heart sick when you, you know, when you're, you know, your family, but you don't know those details. And I think they just, they just didn't want to tell us. Sure. They told David's older sister, Sean, fell off of a lawnmower. Oh, wow. And uh, not only did it beat Sean and Brenda, but Brenda also knew that David Nix was being mean to Sean. Yeah. And she, I guess she was so scared of him that she never told David Wayne or the other no, sisters. Bye. Yeah. that he was beating Sean because I guess he beat her and so she's to the point where she's scared to tell it for fear of what he might do to her. Well, And that, so that brings every- me that brings me to another good point. Uh, now that he's gone, he's not a threat to her. What are the chances that Brenda would share anything else that she might know or things she was afraid to talk about that might hold some of the answers. Has she been open or talkative or willing to share anything? I'll let you answer that one. Brenda, I don't know. I think Brenda suffers from so much PTSD, and I do think that she is embarrassed, and I think that she's really ashamed of their lifestyle at that point in time. I called the EMA one day and said, can, can I ask about 911 records? Oh, yeah. And they said, oh, well, we keep them for three years. And so I thought maybe I could get the numbers off the 911 records and, and show them to Brenda and see maybe if we could see who and what was kind of going on. But they're not public records in the state of Alabama. We'd have had a warrant. But the lady 
told me that from April uh, 1st of 2016 through the end, well, uh, through August, Brenda went to jail in June, but that there were numerous 911 calls out to that address. And um, I asked Brenda, I said, well, what would happen? And she said, well, it was just we would fight or somebody would be into it. Sean would be drinking and would call 911. But David Nix always went out to talk to the sheriff's deputies. And the neighbors knew. But they, I think they were just afraid of the man. Um, like I said, it's, a, it's kind of a sordid place. It's, it's a real rural. And there's, from what we hear, a good bit of drug involvement up there. And I think they were just afraid. To answer the question, Brenda kind of has selective memory yeah, where Sean is concerned as to what she will tell us and what she will not. You can question her, and some days she will tell you she don't remember, uh, and some days it's more like she just don't want to talk about it. Thank you, Lisa. So she has not really... I'm not bashing her. She oh, lived no, a bad no, life no. like Sean did. Yeah. But she has, I, I'm sure she knows a lot more than she has told us. But I don't think she actually had any involvement in Sean's death as his actual death. I mean, she did know that he was getting beat up on a daily basis. She did know about the drugs. She did know about the problems that were going on. But she never called anybody and told it or asked for help. And now I think she suppressed a lot of those memories. And I don't know if that she's scared to talk about it for fear of retaliation or that somebody might hurt her. I think she just repressed it to the point where maybe she don't remember a lot of it. But I do think she knows a lot that she might could help with as far as names or people that might be involved. So we have another sister, Robin, and um, Robin was savvy enough to make a recording the night after Nick's report is shown um, missing. She hid a recorder on her body, and we listened to Nick's talk about uh, Sean walking away. He was extremely drunk. But the the recording was sobering because there were some things in in the recording, we transcribed some of it and gave it back to the sheriff's department and said, please look at, uh, listen to minute three through four point whatever, where David Nix talks about who he's tired of and what he would do and, and this type thing. I don't know what they did. Um, we have pushed, I mean, I, I would say, hey, do you know this? Do you see this? You know, I've got this idea. So I'm hoping they put it in the case file. I, I, I don't know. Um, Robin has been she, she's come forward and she has given a statement we're going to back up a little bit because I think this is important my other sister David Nix gave the phone to Robin my other sister and the first uh, uh, when she called me it wasn't hey David why or text me rather uh, it wasn't how are you or anything like that it was, uh, I've got Sean's phone. I think he's dead. And I thought, you bull. And that came from their sister who was with David Nix at the time. Yeah. 
Wow. And y'all gonna thank my family is nothing but <laughs> a bunch of whatever. It is what it is. But uh, it's, this is good. Wow. It, it, it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like as a group, you all think that uh, Sean is is dead. And uh, at this point, is it that you just want to know where his remains are so you can give him a proper goodbye or just to know what really happened? What is it you, you hope to find out at this point? I'm like David. I just want somebody to tell the truth. And, you know, I I have all the respect for law enforcement and the people that do the job, and, and they've been great, and they <laughs> They've given the the two investigators have given us information they didn't have to have, and and I've worked hard. Lisa's worked hard. Um, you know, we've had people's uh, stories change. You know, and it, what we would want now, there are people up there that who say I just don't want to be involved, and I'm okay, fine. But would somebody please tell us? We we put up posters. We we, we posted a reward. Somebody took them all down. Um, it, it it just needs to be a change in the way these cases are handled. And in 2019, not one half mile from where Sean lived, another young man had went missing. His name's Bradley Yellard. Different people, but same story. He just showed up. He just showed up, no shoes, no credit card, no phone, and he walked away. Wow. Wow. So it it, it sounds like answers are the the most important thing in in getting some kind of, uh, I don't know if there's such thing as closure, but just to have uh, some finality. Mike, I just appreciate this. We appreciate this. Oh, gosh, yeah. I, I I wrote the attorney general, not that I know that that will ever do anything, but um, the fact that, I mean, Sean's on NamUs, and, you know, the fact that 2,300 people go missing, like, every day, you know, and, and you've got more volunteers providing support, I think, than maybe you have law enforcement to do, to, to handle the case. And what we ran into, the one thing that was said is, you know, um, if the first 72 hours after someone goes missing is the most critical time, then why do we wait a week to go out and and talk? You know, doesn't it make sense? And I asked this of our investigators, doesn't it make sense that you would investigate a missing person, even if it's redundant and you have to do the same paperwork as a homicide? And collect, have it, take pictures, look around. Instead of waiting six months after a, a really tired family has begged you, we look and, and then I'll, oh, yeah, you know, I think something good happened. But like he went missing supposedly on that Saturday night, but David Nix did not report him missing to Monday. So that was two whole days, basically, and two whole nights that if he did do something, he could have destroyed a lot of evidence. And then not asked from the sheriff's department, but they dropped the ball also because they just treated it like, oh, he walked away, he'll be back in a couple of days. There's there's a seven to ten day period there that there was more evidence lost or more 
anything that was in the house that could have been swabbed or luminoled or any kind of evidence that could have been gotten from the house. Well, there's another seven to ten days there that that evidence was lost. And I'm like, Carol, yeah, anybody can walk away and anybody can disappear. But why not treat it like, wow, did, you know, let's just think something happened to him. And how much more does it cost or how much more paperwork or effort do you have to put into investigating it as something happened from the get-go instead of, oh, he just walked away, he'll be back. Yeah. That's hindered us was the, the little missing link that started those, say, 15 days that, that most everything we could have probably used was basically lost. Yeah. Four years later... Four years later, I can say one thing that we did say, thank you. Thank you. We were right. Lieutenant um, Horton uh, had a, another cadaver dog taken into the house. The first year, it was supposed to have been done, and it for some reason or another, that didn't happen. But they took the dog into the house, and he called me. And that bleach spot in the middle of the living room floor, that's where the cadaver dog signaled. There and at the edge of the porch. Van that he had when Sean went missing, he supposedly traded in and swapped that van and got another one. And when I say identical to the one he had, it was identical. And we didn't know until this past year when Brenda, the sister that lived with Sean and David Nick, told us just, It's very, uh, very the the timing of it all is very suspicious. Um, it's it, it sounds very frustrating for you all to go through, and I, I can obviously hear that how concerned you were and wanting the truth to come out. And I hope that if someone out there listening knows anything, they'll do the right thing and come forward so that you all can find out once and for all what really happened. Um, again, I want to thank you all for coming on to break down oh, and share you. Sean's story with us. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for showing an interest and just willing to help us and put the information out for maybe some other people can see it that hasn't already saw it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Missing Persons. If you can provide any information to help solve the case we discussed in this episode, please contact the appropriate authorities. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends about missing persons and invite them to listen to the show. Word of mouth will help us grow and bring these cases to a larger audience. You can also help us by taking a moment to rate and review missing persons on the platform you're listening to us now on. We'd like to tell you a little bit about our Patreon program. If you visit patreon.com backslash missing podcast, you can sign up to help this podcast through ongoing monthly support. As a thank you, we'll give you an on-air shout-out, a thank you card and sticker, plus you'll get early access to ad-free episodes of the show and any bonus content. Your Patreon support also goes towards helping the missing, because every dollar that we earn through Patreon will be split with charlieproject.org, the wonderful website that's been sharing information about so many missing persons cases for years. We hope you'll consider supporting the show. 
Just a reminder that new episodes of Missing Persons air every other Saturday. If you want to find us on social media, you can search Facebook for Missing Persons Podcast. And we're also on Twitter with the handle at missing underscore pod. And of course, you can find us on our website, missingpersonspodcast.net. As we wrap up this episode, we'd like to play a preview of a true crime podcast we think you'll like. It's called Active Shooter. Be sure to give it a listen. On behalf of Jess Betancourt, this is Mike Morford saying thanks, and we'll see you next time on Missing Persons. We have an active shooter. We have an active shooter inside the warehouse. Welcome to Active Shooter, a podcast that covers the whys, the hows, and the aftermath of active shooter events. We will delve into the lives interrupted by domestic terrorists. We will investigate the background of the shooter and together discuss ways in which they can be stopped or even prevented in the future. We will also discuss the failures of our mental health system. They have an active shooter in the building. A second call says they uh, are being attacked. I've been shot. 1692 means we got shots fired. 415 ASL. Route 91 sounded like an automatic firearm. We will look at the media responses and discover together how they may have inadvertently inspired and contributed to the rise of the mass shootings. Active shooter. Reports of an active shooter. Active shooter. Active shooter of mass casualty incidents. This is not a political podcast nor a podcast about gun control. This is a podcast that studies the psychology behind active shooters and how and why they make the decisions they have made to take the lives of innocent people. I love you. I love you. It's going to be fine. You hide from there. Can you play dead? Welcome to Active Shooter. Thank you for listening. Missing Persons is produced under the name Abjack Entertainment by Mike Morford and Jessica Betancourt. It's hosted by Mike Morford and Jessica Betancourt, with writing and research by Jessica Betancourt and editing by Mike Morford. Be sure to listen every other Saturday for an all-new episode of Missing Persons.